0: the truth of your word i pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to grasp uh, what you're saying in our passage that we're studying today i thank you for truth and pray that we would be obedient to those things you've commanded us in your name amen well a husband was in very big trouble when he forgot his wedding anniversary he wasn't dwelling with his wife according to knowledge And his wife told him, "Uh, you know what, tomorrow there better be something in that driveway for me that goes from zero to 200 in two seconds flat. The next morning the wife found a very small package in the driveway and she opened it and found a brand new bathroom scale. (laughs) Funeral arrangements for the husband have been set for Saturday. So, anyway. (laughs) Oh, terrible. Well, certainly within our culture... The concept of a wife being submissive to her husband is considered domestic abuse or out of touch with a woman's rights in her home. I'm always amazed in, throughout the years when I'd be at a wedding and the vows were being given and be sitting around people when they say to love, cherish, honor, and obey. And you know <gasps> people around, they say obey, you know, very <laughs> taken back by that. Opponents would say this implies that women are inferior to men, but nothing could be further from the truth according to Scripture. This is often such a struggle for women, Christian wives, that they find themselves seeking help again and again. One pastor made this observation that I thought was very good. He said, I have observed that a large percentage of Christian wives know more, much more, than they put into practice. Interested in attending another class, taking another course, going to another Seminar, reading another book, and with what results? Normally greater guilt. Learning more truth is a poor and cheap substitute for stopping and putting into practice the truth you've already learned. I thought that was a good word. I I suspect most of you are so familiar with this passage and what it teaches, but sometimes we need to be reminded of truths we've already known because we start to drift or forget or get lazy In obedience, Peter is not finished with the subject of submission and suffering. That is the context of our book. However, he now is going to include wives after having just taught us that citizens are to submit to the government and slaves to their masters. So, this needed to be addressed because there were Christian women who were married to unbelievers, and they needed guidance on how to respond to their unbelieving husbands. If a wife became a believer in Jesus and her husband did not, This presented a great deal of problems, and in the ancient culture, it was unheard of for a woman to convert to a religion apart from her husband. Under Roman law, a wife went from first being under the total authority of her father to then being married and under the total authority of her husband. No Roman woman would make any decision for herself, especially when it came to what you believe, but as you well know, coming to faith in Jesus is an individual decision, and women who trusted Christ in Christ did so without their husband's permission or approval. And this is the reason Peter is addressing these women who were being persecuted for their faith because of their husbands. Peter had just addressed, as I said, being obedient to civil authorities and the proper response of a slave to a master. And now the proper response of believing wives toward their unbelieving husbands. So six out of seven of these first verses deal with women because they were the ones facing the serious problem uh, because of their faith. He does not advise a believing wife to leave her pagan husband, nor to be his personal evangelist and Holy Spirit and preacher. Rather, Peter tells wives to submit to their own husbands. We know in 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks about the impact that an unbelieving uh, a believing rather spouse can have on the unbelieving one in the home. Colossians three twenty seven and 8, Paul makes it clear that women are spiritually equal to men. So this submission never means less than equal to a husband. Both man and women are created in the image of God. Both have the same value before God. So let's look at this first section that deals with a wife being submissive to her own husband and how she is to behave in her home. So, the purpose of submission is really comes to light in these verses. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality. ...of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. And you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So Peter begins by saying, in the same way, which I already mentioned, refers back to submission just written about. We know from Scripture, no way is a wife who submits to her husband less than equal to her husband in intellect or spirituality before the Lord. Rather, this is God's design, as he made different roles necessary for order to function in all these different institutions he created. Parents are over children. Children are not over their parents. Employers are over the employees. Governments over its citizens. And husbands over their wives. Everyone on this planet is submitting to somebody. And notice Peter makes it clear that a wife is to submit to your own husband, not the other men in the family, not the other men in the community. And why should a believing wife submit to her husband? So that she can be an instrument used by God to bring the truth of the gospel to his attention. He will wonder why she is different. So she, she illustrates what submitting to Jesus looks like when she actually submits to her husband. The purpose then is to win him to Christ. He may be an obstinate, difficult, ornery husband to live with, But even such a man can be one to Christ with a wife who is not a nag, but lovingly carries out her her husband's desires and wishes. This is not obeying with a bad, resentful attitude, I hate you, but I'll do it, but really with a willing, kind heart. So if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, or even harder in many cases to a professing believer who doesn't act like one, uh, your priority is to live with him with a loving spirit in order to win him to Christ, win him back to walking with Christ by your godly behavior. This is not about making him a better husband so that life will be easier for you. This is about his soul and where he will spend eternity. There is a time and a place to share the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, the truth of why you do what you do and behave how you behave. But this needs to be in conjunction with your submissiveness and godly actions and attitudes. So what does it look like? Well, she's a chaste wife, one who is morally pure. This means a total commitment to your husband alone. A husband is constantly observing his wife, so what should they be seeing? Chaste and respectful behavior. Paul repeated the same verse, really, when he states that wives are subject to their own husbands. He put, as to the Lord... So your attitude of submission to a husband is because you submit to the Lord and his word. Even if his character is difficult to respect, especially if he behaves like a fool, a wife is still to respect him for who God says he is. He is the head of your home. A godly wife does this because she loves Jesus. How could a husband be won by a wife who looks down on him, who criticizes him continually, who makes them look stupid in front of the children or starts to drift in her own heart towards men that other than her husband. So Peter continues with the behavior of submission when he talks about a, a wife's adornment, not to just be external, but the inner person of a heart. The point Peter is making is not to condemn wearing jewelry uh, or having nice hairstyle, or else women couldn't wear any dresses. A Christian wife is to be attractive and as she can be for her husband, but Peter's talking about the problem of Christian wives who are preoccupied with their outward appearance and beauty, thinking that that is the most important thing, largely because of pride, but also maybe thinking you'll win your husband that way. You don't win the heart of a husband by outward beauty. Rather, the key is the inner character of who you really are. Because women were so limited in involvement outside of their homes the official wives. It became common to focus then on physical adornment and dress. Braids would be jeweled into uh, women, so all that they owned and possessed the value got woven into all their different braids. And often with extravagant wealth being shown off in their braids. Pearls and costly jewelry were often shown off on any other area that you could go out in public uh, wearing that it could be seen by all. So their focus was so much on their outward appearance that they neglected the hidden person of the heart. Peter isn't forbidding a woman to dress well, but rather it is an issue of being obsessed with fashion or overly concerned about what your outward appearance looks like. And this really becomes a matter of priorities. We are not to ignore our appearance on the outside, but our focus has to be to concentrate our efforts on the beauty from within our character and godliness. True beauty that is precious to God is a tranquil, humble, and submissive wife. This doesn't validate looking unkept as if that's spiritual. As a wife, we should look our best physically for our husbands, but it cannot be the focus of our life. Peter's point is that you cannot persuade a husband by your beauty to come to Christ. It will be that inward godly behavior that the Lord uses to open his eyes to truth. And then he gives the example of submission and he talks about the holy women who hoped in God and how they adorned themselves. This is nothing new. They adorned themselves by being submissive to their husbands. And specifically he mentions Sarah and how she obeyed Abraham. The point is there is nothing new for God. This is nothing new for a godly woman to behave this way. They have always been characterized by submission to their husbands if they were godly women. You recall how beautiful Sarah must have been as every king who ever saw her wanted to add her to her harem, no matter her age, um, as they were told falsely that it was Abraham's sister. But Sarah's life was still characterized by her outward beauty but also by her submission to her husband. Calling him Lord was just her way of showing him respect. I know that's not the way we speak about people as my friend Espy said, if my husband builds me a castle, then I'll call him Lord. <laughs> Anyways, but it was a term of respect. <clears throat> Abraham was the father of the faithful, even though there were times when he failed, and he certainly was not faithful. But the same could be true for Sarah. She was submissive. That's what characterized her life, even though times she certainly would have failed. And aren't you glad God doesn't label us because of our failure? He sees the big picture the overall desire of our heart, and the trend of our obedience. And just like all who believe follow the example of Abraham, he is the father of all who believe, so all women who are submissive follow the example of Sarah. So all have become her children who follow her pattern and do what is right. It can be a fearful thing of where submission might take a wife, especially if she lives with a fool who makes decisions that are not wise uh as you live with an unbelieving husband but there is no need to fear because if we submit to the lord and do what he's told us to do we can entrust him to take care of us in other words you do what god tells you to do regardless of the situation you submit to your husband obviously unless he tells you to do evil but you submit to him you trust god to honor your obedience So having just spent this time laying down responsibilities for a believing wife, Peter wants to make clear that there still are responsibilities for a believing husband. And this is where he brings up that a man is to live with his wife in an understanding way. This means he's to be considerate and sensitive, aware of his wife's emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual struggles. Like Jesus loves the church and gives himself for her. So husbands are to love their wives. He should be a lifetime student of his wife, and obviously this is a class that never ends because the curriculum continues to change because no woman stays the same. Peter refers to the wife as the weaker vessel since she is a woman. This does not mean she's inferior, has less intellect or character or spirituality than her husband. It simply means that, generally speaking, women are less strong physically than men, and therefore the man is to be her protector. He is also to show her honor, because both husband and wife are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And he says this, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So how does a husband show her honor? By lovingly considering her needs above his own. You know, when you think about it, before Christianity came into the world, women in every culture were usually looked down upon. Men didn't look out for them before they looked out for their own personal needs first. First. But when Christ comes into a man's heart and transforms them, now there's a change. There is an awareness. There is chivalry. There is kindness, giving up his seat, seeing to her comfort first. This was foreign back in this culture, and I'll tell you what, it's really foreign in our culture as well. Not too long ago, I attended a shower, a baby shower, where both men and women were present. And it was a big crowd in a smaller space to be opening the gifts and there were many young men there and they took up every seat in that living room and all of us stood for the whole time that she opened the gifts and i was really annoyed about this (laughs) and worse yet there were mothers there and i know they're because they're my friends and these were their sons and i was disturbed by their behavior because these young men will become husbands one day with no thought to women and their comfort and showing chivalry to them. Peter states that men who are thoughtless towards their wives will not have their prayers answered. Simple as that. If we are not treating people as God has commanded, so this is wives too, and we're going to look in the next few verses at all the commands. If we or our husbands are not treating people correctly, then we are not right with the Lord, and he will not hear our prayers. Someone put it this way, the size of the injured wife come between the husband's prayer and God's hearing. Well, so far we have seen Peter instructing believers how to respond to difficult government, difficult bosses, and difficult husbands. When you suffer because of any of these situations, it is easy to become resentful, rebellious, or proud, or just thinking, I don't have to endure this kind of garbage from anybody. Yet all of these things are what God uses to conform us to his image and to make us more like Christ. So preparing for more persecution, Peter now addresses what, he sums it all up. To sum it up, all of you, men, women, husbands, wives, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I can't help but think, when we get to chapter 5, when um, Peter writes, God is opposed, gr- gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. And this is the same idea. He is not hearing the proud and their prayers. Well, Peter sums up or concludes this section with an exhortation to all believers to obey if you're going to walk in fellowship with the Lord. We are to live in harmony with each other, sharing a common heart of unity in the Lord. We are to have sympathy. We are to share in feelings for others. When they experience pain and sorrow, that means we are to be brotherly, which speaks of having an affection, of being unselfish with one another. We are also to be kind-hearted, which is similar to being sympathetic, as you enter into the pain of others and what they are experiencing, and you show compassion. And finally, Peter tells all believers we are to be humble in spirit. As Paul wrote, so clearly to the Philippians, we are to esteem one another more important than ourselves. And our best example is clearly Jesus, who exemplified gentleness and humility in yielding his rights. So life is not about having everything go our way or the faulty thinking that we know the right way for everything to be done. We are to be flexible and bend to others and not be filled and controlled by our self-will. With all this being said, it's clear that we are not to return evil for evil. So if this is something you're already doing, whether it's with a neighbor, somebody you know in your family, a husband, a child, a friend, you must stop. Remember we talked about last week, Jesus died on the cross, bore our sins in his body so that we would put to death sin. When mistreated by a boss or a spouse, we are not to retaliate. We are to go back to the... The end of chapter 2, and look at our example of Jesus who suffered greatly with no retaliation, but rather, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the great judge of the universe who will deal with all things and set them straight one day. Instead of returning evil for evil or responding with an insult because you got an insult, believers are to actually give a blessing instead. We are to speak well of others and to love the unlovely unconditionally. After all, for this very reason, we have been called into God's family being forgiven of all our sins, so we must turn around and forgive others who hurt and offend us. We have been blessed with the gift of life, which we don't deserve, and so we forgive as we've been forgiven. Then Peter moves on in verses 10 and 11 to quote from Psalm 34 to back up what he's saying. Believers who desired life and love, and to see good days in your life, must refuse evil behavior themselves. The tongue must not be used to strike back at people or to lie. Believers are to turn away from evil, like treating hurtful people with revenge, and instead do good to them. We are to be a people who seek peace with others as much as possible, and I realize there are people on this planet, most of them have a relative in this category, but there's nothing you could ever do to be at peace with them. But that is our goal as much as depends on us. We are to intensely be aggressive, to be at peace with even persecutors. We are to be the peacemakers. And why should we do this? Because the Lord hears and sees all that we do. In verse 12, and for those who seek him in prayer and who walk in obedience, he hears their prayers. But the Lord is against those who do evil and refuse to obey his word. So remember what James wrote to us, as I said in the short book, or, I didn't say this yet. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Do not resent the trials. In reality, we are to welcome them as friends. This is what builds endurance. This is what makes godly character be developed in your life. So we are to prove zealous for what is good as we experience suffering or attacks. It pushes us to Christ which develops godliness in our character. And really, ultimately, it makes you a lot less interested in the things of this world. And then he talks about verses 14 through 17, and due to time I cannot read all the verses, that we are to suffer only for doing what's right, not for doing what's wrong. We're not to be afraid of suffering and what people might do to us, but rather fear God instead of people. The world may intimidate and pressure us and bring suffering into our lives because of their power over us, but if we have set apart Christ as the Lord of our life, then he is our refuge, he is our strength, he is our deliverer. And our hope in him will give us opportunities to speak to unbelievers as we give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. In sharing our hope, we are to speak with gentleness and reverence and keep our conscience clear, having a godly attitude and response. Well, no matter how God-honoring you might be in your response or behavior in a difficult situation, the will of God may be that you go through suffering anyway. If we are living in his will and obedient to his word, then our suffering should only be for doing what is right. It should not be the consequence for our own stupid, foolish, sinful behavior. Peter reiterates the gospel in verse 18 that Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, And he was put to death and suffered greatly for us, yet made alive again in the spirit. Peter is talking about the human spirit of Jesus, which is eternal, as well as the human body that he died in. And in these next verses, as you know from doing the lesson, they're very challenging, and obviously there are many, many different interpretations or thoughts explaining the meaning, meaning, but which one is the right one. Well, you'll have to make that decision for yourself. So we are told here that when Jesus died, his spirit, apart from his body that was still lying in the tomb, went and made proclamation to spirits in prison. He went to a real place and made proclamation that he is the victor over sin, over hell, over Satan, and his demons. So who were the spirits that he visited? Many would say that it cannot be people. Because people are referred to as those with souls. And in the New Testament, the word spirits normally is used to describe angels or demons, not people. Hades is the place for the unbelieving people who have died. A temporary place where they await the resurrection. Hell is that permanent and final place of judgment for the lost people. But when Jesus died, after yielding his spirit to the Father between death and resurrection, he visited the realm of of the dead, a place called a a prison, delivering a message to spirit beings. These were likely fallen angels who were involved during the period of the time before the flood. These are the ones in the pit who have no freedom. Revelation talks about that. Um, And you know when Jesus healed the demoniac, the demon said, don't send us to the pit. You know, a place of total restriction and no freedom. Others would say that the demons particularly are those angels who went after, fallen angels who went after strange flesh mentioned in Genesis and Jude. Certainly, demons can possess a person to commit the most horrific and heinous and grotesque of sexual sins possible by controlling people. As angels do not have themselves the ability to procreate. But Jesus announced he didn't preach the gospel to this. No one in this place, this prison could be saved. Jesus proclaimed or heralded a message of victory over the hosts of demons. We know from Scripture that there are demons, as I said, freely doing service for Satan right now. They're the ones that we sometimes find ourselves being attacked by. But there are some, as I said, imprisoned in pits, also known as the abyss or darkness, and they are awaiting judgment. These must be the most vile, grotesque, Wicked of all fallen angels. Their influence must have been so extreme before the flood as mankind did evil continually that God determined to destroy all of mankind. Another view is that the spirits in prison are human spirits, unbelievers who died and are in the place of punishment. Likely those who did not obey the preaching of Noah during the building of the ark, and God's patience ended as not one repented, only Noah and his family were saved. They would say that these are the spirits now in prison waiting a final judgment of God. But when I think about the reference to place of suffering, those who are in Hades, it usually is outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, um, things like that. I don't recall reading that as a prison. In verse 20, the context clearly reveals Peter speaks about the days of Noah when the patience of God kept waiting during the construction of the ark where only eight people were saved. So that's the context here. So either Jesus visited the demons bound by God for their role in the absolute total depravity and moral destruction of all mankind before the flood, Or he proclaimed to the dead spirits of those people who never repented that he is the one who conquered over all. Noah clearly is a great example in the context of this passage of a man who kept a clear conscience while being persecuted. He did not fear man, but he feared God. The result was that he and his family were saved from the floodwaters of judgment. What an amazing picture this is as we see God preserve them in the ark, Noah and his family were kept safe from the flood waters when everyone else was swept away and died through God's judgment. Then, as now, salvation through faith in the Lord preserves believers safely through judgment that is yet to come to this world. Peter's next statement, that baptism now saves you, obviously has been greatly misunderstood to be a reference to water baptism. You don't pick this one phrase out of the hall of Scripture that clearly presents baptism as nothing to do with salvation, as a step of obedience after one comes to faith. But the word baptized means to immerse, and it just doesn't mean just in water. Just as believers are immersed into Christ, that's what Romans 6 says you are baptized into Christ who is an ark of safety for all who enter into a relationship with him, they will experience safety when divine judgment comes. So was the case for Noah and his family, who were not immersed, not only immersed in water, but they were protected by actually being in the ark. In other words, it is God who preserves in the midst of judgment if they have trusted him just as Noah trusted him. It is only when a sinner trusts in Jesus by faith that at that moment... They are baptized into, immersed into, placed into the body of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the moment of salvation. It could never occur from the simple rite of sprinkling some water on somebody or dunking them in the water. As he makes the point, it is not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Rather, through faith in the resurrection of, the, of Jesus from the dead, a person can have a conscience that is free from condemnation, That is only possible because of our triumphant Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf. He is the promise and hope that even if we suffer unjustly here, again, the big picture of the context, we will have victory when we see him. He is the one seated at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I think this is a key verse in explaining what we've just seen. He is over all angels, good and evil. All have been made subject to him because of the cross, something he clearly communicated after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This closing verse causes me to think that the proclamation Jesus made was to the evil angels, now imprisoned in this place called the abyss. And all they could hear was the shout of victory by Jesus. Jesus died for lost human beings who, who believe the gospel message. And this is something, as you know, even angels, holy angels look at and can't even quite get a hold of. All of creation is subject to him as he alone sits at the right hand of God. Jesus died, he proclaimed his victory to the most vile of angels, then rose from the dead, ascended to heaven where he now reigns. So, ladies, we can endure suffering. You can be in a rough marriage. You can be in a rough country. You can be in an unpleasant job situation or family situation where you take abuse. Keep your eyes on the prize and the finish line that awaits us when we leave this world and we're welcomed to our real home. Safely through all the storms of this life. There is victory through suffering in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truths of your word and though they're challenging to understand in portions like we saw today, I pray that we won't get bogged down by the details that we may not fully grasp, but understand the overall picture. If we're married, what kind of wives we're supposed to be. If we suffer, how we're supposed to suffer, not with revenge, but speaking and doing kindness. Lord, I pray for each one here who faces their own situations that they're struggling in. Lord, would you just encourage them to keep on being obedient to your word, to put to death their natural response to hurtful things that are done and instead die to that and live and walk in obedience to these truths that we've read it today. In your name, amen.